Dave was the CMO. And so Dave and I had worked at Mercury together. It's really funny. And um, he, he only knew me as JJ at Mercury. So when I got reintroduced to him, he saw my resume and it said Jennifer Johnson on it. And he did not make the connection that I was one in the same. Jennifer Johnson was JJ. So yeah. we had an entire email conversation, a phone conversation. And he's like, well, come in and meet with me. And I'm thinking this guy knows yeah. who I am because like I worked with him, right? Like, I mean, we were he was talking to me like I was his old friend. And so I get to the, I'm sitting in the lobby waiting for my interview to meet with him. And he looks at me, he's like, JJ, what are you doing here? And I'm like, Dave, <laughs> I'm like, I'm interviewing with you. He's like, wait, what? He's like, you're Jennifer Johnson? He's like, no way, I only knew you as JJ. He didn't know my name was Jennifer. So that's what really, and he goes, I don't need to interview you. Get your butt in here and start working. So I love it. This is The Early Years, a show about influential early employees of the most successful companies and their stories that have made a lasting impact. I'm Braden Anderson, and on today's show, how our guest has been a key executive at some of the most successful technical companies in Silicon Valley. Have you ever passed on a job or even applying for a job because you were worried you weren't technical enough? Maybe you think the company is too technical or you don't fully understand the offering. You're not alone. This is something that likely happens often because we don't want to potentially embarrass ourselves. Today, we're joined by Jennifer Johnson or JJ, and she has turned this apparent weakness into a strength at each company she's worked at. JJ realized early on that taking something technical and complex and making it simple is one of her greatest strengths. JJ has gone from low-level product marketing manager to CMO at some of the most technical companies in Silicon Valley. Here's part one of her story. I lived in San Francisco, as most people in tech do at some point in their career, if not their entire career. So uh, I was a graduate of the University of San Francisco. My first job out of college was financial healthcare consulting. So nothing to do with tech. I audited hospital bills <laughs> for, wow. re for insurance reimbursement. Um, and you know, I was watching all of my friends. It was in the late 90s. Um, 96, 97, 98. And I was watching all my friends go to all these companies like pets.com and I think garden.com was one of them. There was a big sign on the middle of the 101 freeway in the Bay Area that was like just lawn, a lawn, basically. It said garden.com. Apparently that was like <laughs> the best thing. I remember these random things. Yeah. And I'm watching all my friends and everyone around me. And I lived in San Francisco and it was, you know, the influx. Anyone who is there for the dot-com boom of the late 90s knows what I'm talking about. And all of a sudden, these people just came from everywhere. And I sat there and I'm like, well, I'm doing healthcare financial consulting. Maybe I have it wrong. And so I made the jump and I went to an online bookseller called fatbrain.com. Now, it's tech. It was technical online online books. So this was like right when Amazon was first yeah. starting as a bookseller, right? And anyone who lived in Silicon Valley or who's an engineer or anything technical absolutely knew Fatbrain if they were around during that time. People loved Fatbrain, and it was all technical books. And um, and so I I made the jump to move over, and of course I did it in like the late, I'd say I was like probably like 99 at that point, okay. 1999 that I yeah. made the, the move. So it was kind of towards the tail end and, and, um, and my accounts were all the big telecommunications companies, Cisco, Nortel at the time, Lucent. 
And uh, the when the when the bubble burst, the first things to to fall and they fell hard were the telcos. Mm. And so I went from <laughs> making the move and the jump and was so excited to <laughs> oh I think I was a day late and a dollar short. <laughs> Which I always say that that might be that might have been the title of my autobiography <laughs> twenty years ago. But. Anyway, you know, so I did what everybody else did. I went back to school because that's what you do. You get your MBA and it's a safe haven when, you know, the economy sucks and there's no yeah. jobs. And, and so I uh, spent two years going to school and came back out and got an internship at Veritas Software. So Veritas, this was like before they merged with Symantec and now they're, they're split again. So it's like so funny if you stay in this industry long enough, you see like things come together and, and split apart. <laughs> But it was pre-Symantec acquisition Veritas. And um, I was just thinking about it the other day, I was like, I had this internship and I had an internship to do for product marketing and it was around regulatory compliance. I had no idea what regulatory yeah. compliance was. I actually had to call my friend who is an environmental scientist and say, what is regulatory compliance? Yeah. <laughs> like, what does that actually mean? And, um, and so it was like, it was trying to map the, um, you know, the impact on you know, uh, data storage, right? So Veritas is a data storage and backup company. So it was around the, the impact of data, data privacy, data storage. But in the middle of my internship, the, all, the, like, the financial crisis and the, the corporate accounting crisis is what I should actually say of like Enron and WorldCom, like oh, yeah. way back in the early 2000s that happened in the middle of my internship. And what came out of that was regulation. That's how Sarbanes-Oxley wow. or SOX as we know it today came out of those corporate scandals, right? Mm. And so here we have all of these, you know, journalists and, you know, the world trying to figure out, well, what does this mean? And what does this mean for technology, right? What does this mean for data? Because data's privacy and security was at the heart of a lot of this regulation. And so from a tech perspective, and, and so I remember my, um, my VP, I was in, product marketing and the VP of all product marketing called me in his office and he's like, I have an interview with, it was like the Wall Street Journal. It was someone of that stature. I have the interview with the Wall Street Journal in two hours. I have, they're asked, they're going to ask me all these questions about socks and I have no idea what to say. And, <laughs> and so here I am like the, the MBA intern. Yeah. <laughs> and so I gave, uh, I gave them talking points. I gave him talking points and I think it was a little bit, you know, what does, what is this regulation and what does it mean for tech and what does it mean for your business? And it was so well received. Then the CEO, um, I was doing talking points for the CEO of Veritas. And then of course wow. that, that led into a, a full-time job. <laughs> so so that how was did, my breakthrough. Yeah. How did you know what the talking points were socks was at the time? Like, how did you learn that? Or why did he rely on you? Well, I was doing, so there's product marketing, which are the, the products that a company sells. And then larger companies will also have solutions marketing. So solutions, those products help solve. And regulatory compliance was one of our solutions because we had a product that actually did data archiving. So like if you're, you know, legal discovery, you need to, you know, get emails, to, you know, if, if you're doing some kind of a, a case and you need to see email, you know, email traffic between, you know, people related to the case, like that's data archiving, right? Is that's how you actually store those and retain those documents. So we had, had acquired a product in that space. So compliance was one of our solutions. So my job was to come up with the messaging and the marketing campaigns for, and work with that team on the, gotcha. the compliance marketing plan. And so I had done a, 
like I was doing a lot of research. So they had me, like I was the regulatory research person. So they said, go learn everything about socks, go learn everything about HIPAA, yeah. which is the healthcare regulation. Go learn everything about, you know, Basel II, whatever. It's like bringing <laughs> me back now. And so I was this wealth of information on the regulations themselves. And then I had to help translate it into the messaging for why that mattered for Veritas and their products and how Veritas's products actually helped you with compliance, achieve compliance. And so like, it was just one of those things where I was in the right place at the right time. And I had a whole wealth of information. And I was also, what it also taught me is I was really good at connecting dots. I was actually able to take something that was not technology driven at all, like a regulation and, and then connect it to what does that actually mean for not only technology in general, but what does that actually mean for Veritas's products and how to actually apply that to customer messaging. Yeah. And so that was like the first hint of maybe I'm pretty good at product marketing and positioning. So uh, I'd say it kind of happened by accident, but what do they say? Like, what is it like? It's luck is like opportunity meets preparation or something like that. So I think that yeah. was the definition of luck right there. Yeah, that is awesome. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with being at the right place at the right time. I completely right. love it. That's um, right. So that's, that then takes you to your first job out of MBA school where you got this great opportunity and it becomes a, you're now a full-time product marketing manager. Tell me more about that role and about that, that experience. Yeah, I mean, so I worked in Veritas for, um, for a few years and then we were acquired by Symantec. So my whole, my whole first like seven, eight years of my career was either spent being acquired by a company or acquiring a company or in some kind of an integration. So I didn't actually, in, in, in product marketing, you're usually really involved in those integrations because you're trying to rationalize your portfolios and especially if you have overlapping technology and how do you bring your products from both companies together. So usually product marketing is at the center of a lot of those integration conversations. So I was like always doing something integration related, it felt like um, for the first you know six or seven plus years of my career. Um, and uh, I had moved from Veritas, uh, Symantec, bought Veritas, I was at Symantec for a while. And then I moved over to a company called Mercury Interactive. And Mercury was uh, best known for uh, uh, load testing. So qual like quality testing from a QA, from building apps, QA testing it, um, functional performance testing. That's what Mercury okay. was probably best known for. And um, we got acquired by HP. So in that acquisition, I was lucky enough to, uh, I moved over and I switched teams um, into a totally different product line than I was covering before. And I was working for a new woman um, that also came from Mercury, but she was leading this, this team was predominantly HP products. Um, and her name was Michelle Feaster. And uh, she became my boss, my mentor, my champion, my advocate, a friend, a dear friend. And uh, she really, uh, I always say she saw what I didn't know that I had, or she saw what I mm. didn't see in me. And she was really my, um, my advocate in my career. She was the one that I'd say put me on a different trajectory. She really? gave me, you know, my first management people management job, um, role in the company and, you know, was put me in the right projects that, you know, gave me visibility and was a huge advocate of mine. Of course I worked hard and, and all that too. And I proved it, but proved myself, but she was there to really give me the, um, kind of the push and, and, and the stage that I needed to do it. And that was, that's one of my big 
recommendations for everyone is, is find whoever that person is, or it might be multiple people through your career, but totally find that person who's going to be a champion and an advocate and not only give you the coaching, but give you the visibility and put you in places where you get that visibility with a broader, um, you know, a broader group of people in a company. I mean, she really did set me on, on a whole different, you know, trajectory in my career. And I will never be able to thank her enough. <laughs> That's awesome. And I, you're right. Like we need that individual or multiple individuals to, to really help us. Um, yep. And I'm really curious. So in this role, it's a pretty technical role, right? Like you said, like there it's quality assurance on apps and, and making sure that everything's working correctly. Um, you're, you obviously don't come from a very technical background and, you know, nope. not an engineer. Did you see that as a disadvantage for you or an advantage? How was that? Yeah, that's a great question. I'd say it, until I realized it was my strength, I viewed it as my disadvantage. Hmm. And um, because I was not an engineer, I had a business degree, marketing degree. I went, I went into a very, you know, a lot of times product marketing or highly technical roles. The people in those roles don't always come from engineering, but a lot of times they do have engineering uh, backgrounds and those roles interface with engineering quite uh, closely. And in fact, at HP, I was in the same group as R&D so, um, for a while. So you have to be able to, to get in there and talk the talk with the, the engineers. And, you know, I had, you could call it imposter syndrome. I could think probably earlier in my career that I thought, well, there's no way I'm not, I'm not smart enough because I'm not technical enough. And I just kept learning. I just kept educating myself. And I just, I kept reading. I read everything there was to know about my products. I would ask a lot of questions. I would have the product managers and the engineers, you know, sit with me. And I would, I would ask those I think people sometimes are embarrassed to ask questions because they don't want it to seem like they don't know the answer and they don't want, especially in those roles where a lot of times technical, technical skills become the most valued skill at that level. And I just asked the questions that no one else was asking. Like, and sometimes they seem basic, but then all of a sudden you ask it and you realize no one in the room knew the question, the answer to this question. Yeah. Like I was just the one asking it. Right. Yeah. And so I just, I just probably was more curious in some ways and less afraid um, and, and to, to learn and ask questions and learn more. And then I finally realized, wait, this isn't my Achilles heel, not being an engineer. This is my advantage because yeah. a lot of times, you know, engineers, they build things, right? And they fall in love with what they build we all fall in love with what we build and we want to tell the world what we built and what it does and how fast it is and how great it is. And yeah. it's so much better than the, the other, the other products and why. And, and like, and it, and then it really gets into the speeds and feed very quickly. Right. And like every technical jargon word that you've ever seen, right. When you, when you read some of this, this tech material. And what I realized was my strength was not having that background because I didn't go there because that wasn't my vocabulary. My vocab, like what I would do is I would go back, going back to my like regulatory compliance days, I could take something very technical and deep and synthesize it very quickly yeah. and translate it into something that, that non-technical people or business people or whomever was on the other side could understand. Mm. That was my strength is I could simplify it. Yeah. And so once I realized that, that like, okay, well, I learn a lot and I know a lot and I learn more and more and more. And I think that's all the more experience you get on something, the more you just, you, you just learn right through osmosis. But then knowing that 
a perceived weakness is turning it into your strength is actually really powerful, really powerful thing. And that's what I always tell people who are in product marketing, especially if they're earlier in their careers and they're not engineers. Like that is the one like hidden secret that I have. What's not hidden anymore, but you know, (laughs) like, because I know every single person I've talked to that's not an engineer has this fear of not being technical enough. I'm like, don't turn it into your strength. So yeah. maybe there's, I'm sure there's applicability to like anything in life. Turn your weakness into your strength because yeah. it's not a weakness. Yeah. The weakness into the strength and just being able to take something complex and make it simple is so powerful in, in especially from a marketing standpoint, right? Like that's your job as a marketer is making it so that the masses can understand what you're talking about. That's right. That's the art that's right the art. there. Um, so something that's really interesting, right? I think we've seen over the years, the product marketing role has been a great feeder into like eventually becoming a CMO. Um, but that maybe wasn't always the case that that was the right fit. Um, even if it has lately. So I'm curious, how has Mm -hmm. the the role of the CMO changed over the years in your opinion? Well, so as the great marketer that I am, I, I always think of things in, in, I'm sorry, in, in evolutions or waves, or you always see this a lot from, from marketers. And the first, what I call the first evolution or the first wave of CMOs, um, you know, and I'm, I'm generalizing a lot here, but you know, I'm, gonna, I'm going to for the sake of this. A lot of them came from brand and communications backgrounds. So it was like the Mad Men, for those of you who watch Mad Men, right? Advertising, yeah. taglines, branding, you know, that was, that was kind of the big skill to have because that's a lot of times what a marketer was, was thought of is the person that does the advertising, right? We all know that's completely changed over the years, but like you kind of think back like 20 years ago, that's what marketing really was, was a lot of advertising, right? And so, um, and that, in all of these play value, by the way, I'm not saying one's better than the other, it's just how it evolved. And then something, you know, happened probably, you know, in the last, you know, 20, 15, 20 years is that marketing automation and platforms like Marketo and Eloqua and now HubSpot, really back then it was Eloqua and Marketo, they really transformed the role of marketing in the company because marketing went from, I can't, uh, I can't actually quantify the value of what I'm doing and we're just yeah. spending money but we can't, we, we can't track the ROI, to all of a sudden now marketing is a data-driven function in the company that can tie their work to revenue. That was like, transformative right and now all of a sudden you have and and those platforms were the the way to help track that right and so but but beyond that even it was way beyond technology is that people built their entire careers there was a new function the marketing operations function was created because of of these technologies and what it empowered marketing teams to do and all of a sudden the most valuable skill was being data-driven. I mean, we still hear it today, like being a data-driven CMO, being a data-driven marketing organization. It's still powerful, but that was like such a fundamentally new concept. And so everyone wanted the data-driven CMO. So you had like this wave of CMOs for probably the last 15 years that all came out of demand gen backgrounds, demand generation backgrounds. And now I think what you're seeing is not that that's not important. I mean, that's critically important. Demand generation is still pipeline generation is still critical to the company. But I think what you're seeing and what we're seeing in the industry now is that organizations and CEOs want market creators. They don't, they, they need to have the data-driven pipeline generation, you know, revenue generation arm of, of marketing. But what they really want in their CMO is someone that understands how to build, define, dominate a category and a market and disrupt a market. 
And that really requires a, it's a completely different mm. skill set from the demand gen CMO. The demand gen CMO is analytical and data driven and, you know, highly operational. Whereas the, the market creator CMO, not that they can't be those things, but they're usually more about looking at the big picture and the positioning and customer and the competitive landscape and the market dynamics and where the market's going. And, and to do that, usually you need a few skills. You need to understand the market, which means you need to understand the landscape, which means you probably need to understand the technology mm. on some level, right? To, to kind of extrapolate it back up to the market. The other thing is the art of positioning and having a point of view and being differentiated is so critical to this because if you're disrupting something, you're not saying why it's better. You're saying why you have to be, you're, you're applying it to in a different way. You're solving a problem differently. And it's all about positioning is at the core of this. It's, it's about depositioning your competition because no one's been able to solve the problem because you've, you've set the problem up that you're the only best and yeah. only answer. <laughs> and so you think about what you do as a product marketer, right? And, and you have direct experience in this. That's a lot of the things that you do as product marketers is positioning and, you know, understanding technology and the market landscape and the competitive landscape and all those things. And product marketing is what I call a hub. There's spoke pieces of the organization and there's hub functions and the, the, the product marketing roles is usually a hub, mm. which means that it kind of sits in interfaces between product and engineering, sales and the rest of marketing and the customer, right? And translating and synthesizing. And so all those skills that are highly relevant to market creation are skills that a product marketer has by the, by doing their job in product marketing. So that's why I say we're starting to see more CMOs come from product marketing backgrounds because it's not that they want a product marketing CMO, they want a market creator yeah. CMO. Yeah. And, you know, frankly, you're not the, the first person that's mentioned this, right? In previous interviews with Megan Eisenberg, like she's referenced the same thing that, you know, they're just, it's a new skill set that is likely going to be required for this next level or the next wave of, of CMO. So I love it. Um, so I'm, I'm really curious then, tell me how you first got your role as a CMO. Yeah. So I worked, um, so after HP, I went to, um, I went to a company in the development space called Coverity, which is now part of Synopsys. And they, um, they had a, 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 pro a product in the static code analysis space. So that was basically like, if you're writing code, you can like run it through this thing and it would show you where you have defects. So think of it as like a really sophisticated spell checker, but for your code. <laughs> That's what it is. A complex, and, simple. I love it. <laughs> there you go. And, um, and developers really loved it. And so I was the, um, I think I started as the director of marketing for a brief period of time. And um, my very good friend and former colleague, Dave Peterson, who is now one of the co-founders and advisors of Play Bigger, um, they wrote the book on category design. Dave was the CMO. And so Dave and I had worked at Mercury together. It's really funny. And um, he he only knew me as JJ at Mercury. So when I got reintroduced to him, he saw my resume and it said Jennifer Johnson on it. And he did not make the connection that I was one in the same. Jennifer Johnson was JJ. So yeah. we had an entire email conversation, a phone conversation. And he's like, well, come in and meet with me. And I'm thinking this guy knows yeah. who I am because like I worked with him, right? Like, I mean, we were he was talking to me like I was his old friend. And so I get to the, I'm sitting in the lobby waiting for my interview to meet with him. And he looks at me, he's like, 
JJ, what are you doing here? And I'm like, Dave, <laughs> I'm like, I'm interviewing with you. He's like, wait, what? He's like, you're Jennifer Johnson? He's like, no oh, way. I only knew you as JJ. He didn't know my name was Jennifer. So that's what really like, people, I, I'm embarrassed about that because I'm a marketer and it's like, I have a brand identity, <laughs> a personal brand identity problem. But anyway, so I worked with Dave. He's like, look, he's like, and he goes, I don't need to interview you. Get your butt in here and start working. So I love it. Um, yeah. And so uh, we had a great, uh, we had a great working relationship and then he left to actually start Play Bigger. And so when he left to go start Play Bigger, which was the greatest thing in the world for both of us that he did that, because um, it gave me my opportunity to, to be a CMO. And, you know, it's so funny because everybody needs their, well, obviously if you're sitting in the seat, someone gave you your shot, right? Someone gave you that first opportunity. Sometimes you get it um, by going to a new company and it's the first time you've had the title. Sometimes it's because you get promoted into it for whatever reason, right? Um, and that was the case with me. I got promoted into it. And look, I think there's pros and cons to both. And I always thank Anthony Betancourt, who's a CEO. I thank him for giving me the opportunity. But it's funny because the, the, I think the challenge with the, that first CMO role, especially if you were promoted up into it, is that people will never look at you like you're the CMO, even though they try, but like they'll always look at you as the role that you had when you came in because that's actually how they knew you. And, you know, even though like everyone was very respectful and I, you know, like I went, you know, I was in board meetings and I went to all the executive meetings and all that. And no one was disrespectful at all, but there was always that element of like, you're the new kid at the table, you know? Yeah. And, um, uh, my CEO used to call me kiddo. Oh, no. <laughs> Which, and I, I, you know, I, I, I love him. I say that affectionately. It probably wouldn't go so, so well now, probably in, in these times. But, um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I True. wonder, like, I was like, I was like, was he saying that because that was just a term of endearment in his way? Or was he saying that to subtly remind me that you're still a kid? This might be your first time in the seat, but you've got a lot to learn. And boy, whether he was, that was his intention or not, he was definitely right on that front. Yeah. And so, um, and so, you know, it was funny. I just, you know, I didn't like my, my, my advice to people is assume the position. Don't apologize for anything. Don't be, don't have imposter syndrome. If you, if you can, um, you know, you earned the spot fairly and squarely, hopefully. And it's probably because you did a lot of great work and, and did great things through your career. And uh, just know that you're going to have to sometimes fight an uphill battle at the beginning just because you have to change perception. It's like, it's like category design. It's category design in your own career, right? You're in, a new, you're in a new title now. You're in a new category now. Coming up on next week's episode, JJ dives into her first experience as a CMO, her time at Andreessen Horowitz, and the time her company got an eight-page spread in Forbes. Here's a clip. And I remember I was on my way to New Orleans and I had a layover, I don't know what airport, some airport. And I had, I got a, I got a text message when I got off the plane saying, the Forbes article is out, oh my gosh. Like you're gonna probably like, you know, something I probably can't say on the podcast. <laughs> Thanks for listening to today's show. Subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. I'm Braden Anderson, and this is The Early Years.